Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. It's a privilege to come to God's Word together, and we come this morning to our last section in the book of First Thessalonians. Now, back in April, when we began to look at First Thessalonians, we said that this was a letter that described, in many ways, a godly church and genuine faith. And as we've worked through this letter through the weeks, what we've heard over and over again has been God's gracious call to a life of of steadfast faith, to a life of increasing obedience to God and love for one another, and a life of confident hope in the work of Christ and the return of Christ. And so it shouldn't surprise us that as we come to the end of this letter that Many of these themes are wrapped up in or summarized by this final prayer and these final comments that that Paul makes. And he does so in a way that both challenges us, but also encourages us and strengthens us. So if you would, read with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll read verses 19 through 28. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Father, we thank you for your word and for these words. We thank you that your spirit inspired them initially and continues to speak through them to your people. We pray that you would convict us and encourage us this morning for your sake. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, whenever we stop, as we all should do, and reflect on God's call throughout his word, God's call to holiness, God's call to increasing love and obedience, God's call to the growth and grace And then we stop and reflect on our lives. And we reflect on the gap between God's call to holiness and grace and and love and where our hearts currently are. When we stop and and reflect on this, it can be rather discouraging to see the comparison. Because we see God's word, but then we look at our own hearts and we think, I can't even go through one week without getting angry at my boss or angry at my parents or frustrated with my kids. I can't go through one week without thoughts and desires that are dishonoring to the Lord. So how can I match the image of Christ? It seems impossible. What could give us confidence when we see this gap between the call in God's word and the reality of our hearts? 
Well, if we were to scan back through church history, we would see people give a number of answers to that question. In the 5th century, there was a, a British monk by the name of Pelagius, and many of you would have heard of him. And when he saw this gap, he decided his confidence would be in his greater efforts to achieve holiness. Pelagius said and called on fellow Christians to exercise their moral will, to hold better examples in front of themselves, and to make every necessary effort to live in holiness, which he said, if we work hard enough, should be possible for every believer. Well, that was one answer from Pelagius. If we go to the other end of the spectrum, fast forward a number of centuries, and in the years following the Reformation, there were a number of, of men and women who rejoiced in God's free grace for us through faith. But they ended up deciding that God's free forgiveness made obedience to God's law completely unnecessary. And so they found their confidence in this just abundance of God's free grace and forgiveness, which left little need for us to to really work at obedience at all. There's another way you could find confidence, but another that is not biblical. So perhaps we could look back to the 5th century again to a bishop from North Africa by the name of Augustine, who many of you would have heard of and are familiar with, who gave the balanced and biblical response. For Augustine, God calls us to holiness, and we must seek to follow him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. But it is God's work in us that enables us to obey him and that will complete the process of sanctification in us. As many of you would know, Augustine famously said, I have no hope at all but in your great mercy. Command what you will and give what you command. That's the biblical balance focus that will give us confidence in light of this gap. And that's the main point of today's passage as well. What hope do the Thessalonians have? What hope do you and I have of matching this letter's description of of a godly church? The hope comes down to this. It is God's power that is at work in us that gives us confident hope, even as we are called to active participation and effort to follow God's call to holiness in our lives. While this point is most directly stated in verses 23 to 24, this truth is reflected throughout Paul's final words here. And so I want to look at it together. And we'll look at verses 19 to 22 at first. If you ever think back to last week, we were following a whole list of short instructions and commands that Paul was giving to the Thessalonians. And we're, we're still in that mode or that section, if you will, in verses 19 through 22. Paul begins with the broad command, do not quench the spirit, and then follows with the more specific comment, that the Thessalonians should not despise prophecies. And perhaps if we're going to start with a comment of do not quench the Spirit, it's worth giving the comment that at times the Holy Spirit amongst the Trinity is the person that can be a bit ignored. God the Father we know and talk about often. He is our Father too because of the work of Jesus Christ in us. He is the the one who is sovereign and it's his predestining and initiating work that has led to to our salvation. So we talk of God the Father and and God the Son, Jesus, the one who, who was born as a baby, who lived and died and rose again for our salvation. We talk much of God the Son. But when we come to God, the Holy Spirit, sometimes we forget that the Holy Spirit is a person. 
And we think of the Holy Spirit as maybe a nebulous force, and we're not sure exactly how to think about the work of the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, for the church, the Holy Spirit is the power and the lifeblood of our hope. In fact, the Holy Spirit is so much our our power and our hope that when Jesus was talking to his disciples before he died and ascended to his Father, he said, you know, I'm going to return to my Father soon. But Jesus said, that is to your advantage. Jesus told his disciples, it is better for you that I leave you and go back to be with my Father because it's once I have ascended to my Father that I can send the Holy Spirit to be with you. What a powerful statement. In fact, the New Testament goes on to flesh out the the role of the Holy Spirit, telling us that the Holy Spirit will be the helper and the comforter of God's people. The Holy Spirit will convict us of sin. The Holy Spirit regenerates hearts to receive the gospel. The Holy Spirit will guide God's people in all truth. The Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus to our minds and hearts. The Holy Spirit will empower ministry by pouring out spiritual gifts on God's people that we might minister to one another. The Holy Spirit will assure our hearts of the certainty of salvation as the down payment of our promise. So the New Testament talks over and over about the importance and the role of the Holy Spirit. Michael Reeves has written a delightful little book. I say delightful. The title of the book is Delighting in the Trinity. And in it he points out, he said... The life the Spirit gives is not an abstract package of blessing. It is His own life that He shares with us. The life of fellowship with the Father and Son. So the Spirit is not like some divine milkman who leaves the gift of life on our doorstep and then moves on to someone else. No, He does not move on. Having once given life, then the Spirit stays to make that life blossom and grow. See, to the one who has put his faith in Christ, he has given not only forgiveness in the blood of Christ, but also new life as God's very Spirit comes to live in us and change us and remake us into God's image. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But Paul tells us more particularly in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives spiritual gifts to each of God's people for the building up of the body of Christ. And then if we fast forward two more chapters to 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says that while every spiritual gift is given for the building up of the church, in Paul's day, he says, prophecy was of particular importance. Paul says that prophecy played a unique role for the early church, so that the Corinthians should desire prophecy for the building up and encouragement and consolation of the church. Well, why was prophecy so important in the early church? Well, you remember that in the early days of Christianity, the church did not yet have the New Testament. While they had the Old Testament, there were many questions. They did not yet have scripture to go to for answers or for encouragement. And this is why Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 2.20, Paul says that the apostles and the prophets played a unique and important role in the early days of the church to bring revelation to the church from God. And so Ephesians 2 says that that the church was like a house that was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ himself as the cornerstone. This is the reason why the apostles and the prophets were so important at this point in the ministry of the church. 
And so you can see why it would be such a big deal if the Thessalonians were ignoring or rejecting or despising prophecies. Now, of course, there might be good reason to be skeptical of prophecies because just as there were prophets, there were also false prophets running around. And after all, perhaps there were some prophecies, there absolutely were some prophecies that should be quenched. And so maybe the Thessalonians were moving to a default mode of saying, well, there's false prophets out there, we're just going to quench or be hesitant about any prophecy. They were like maybe Curious George in the Curious George Goes Camping story. If you've read that to your children, the man with the yellow hat tells Curious George to throw water on their campfire so that it, it, would, it can go out. And Curious George thinks it's so much fun that he then pours water on all the campfires of the whole campsite. If you're going to quench one fire, quench them all. Maybe that was the attitude of the Thessalonians here as they were despising prophecies. Or, or maybe it was just that the Thessalonians did not value the prophecies the Holy Spirit was giving them. Either way, Paul commands them, do not quench the Holy Spirit or despise the prophecies that he sent. For to do so is to cut off God's work in their midst. But of course, this does not mean that the Thessalonians should just accept all prophecies either. And this is why Paul goes on to the second command, which is test everything that the prophets speak. Hold on to what is good and abstain from whatever type of evil might show up. I follow most commentators as I read this in believing that the test everything, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from what is evil is referring to the prophecies that they're listening to. Everything they hear, they are to test and hold on to what is good and reject that which is evil. Well, how should they test it? How should the Thessalonians test what they hear? Well, they should test it according to Scripture. Like the Bereans did in Acts 17. You remember when the apostles came to the Bereans, it says that the Bereans searched the scriptures to see whether what the apostles told them was true. We should test everything according to scripture. We should also test everything according to the gospel. 1 John chapter 4 says to test the spirits to see if they are from God. And the spirit that is from God is the one that affirms that Jesus was the son of God who came in the flesh for our salvation. And Jesus also tells us that we should test the prophets according to their character and the fruit of their ministry. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets. You will know them by their fruits. And so scripture gives us guidelines to know how to test what we hear. And so here's the call in this first section. It is God's spirit who convicts us, encourages us, builds us up, and ministers God's word to it. The spirit is the lifeblood of our lives as Christians. And yet as God's people, we are called to actively test everything we hear and to discern the work of the spirit. But if we're going to apply this well, we have to make this common, of course, because we've just said that apostles and prophets were a unique gift to the early church before Scripture was completed. Now we have direct revelation from God in the words of Scripture. And so just as we don't expect there to be more apostles, we don't expect there to be more prophets bringing direct revelation from God. So does that mean that the church doesn't need these verses anymore? Does that mean they don't apply to us? Absolutely not. We need these verses because the principles, the two key principles of these verses are perhaps more important for us today as they could ever be. The first principle, of course, is that we must not quench the work of the Holy Spirit 
and his ministry among us. God's word is now our source of revelation from God. And so if we let God's words sit on our bedstand unread, if we don't give our attention to the preaching of God's word, we are quenching the work of the Holy Spirit or despising the word of God brought to us. If we do not recognize that God has told us that his spirit works through his word, if we ignore it, we risk quenching the spirit. But the spirit also has told us that he will convict us of sin. So if we feel the spirit-driven prick of our conscience and blast through that, not listening to the spirit's work, if we decide to ignore that prick of our conscience and continue into sin because the benefits seem so desirable, or if we continue in inaction because the action of faith seems so overwhelming, we risk quenching the Spirit. God's Word also calls us to fan into flame the gift of God given to us by the Spirit. So if we fail to use the Spirit's gifts to minister to one another, we risk quenching the Spirit and His role among us. If we fail to pray for the Spirit to glorify Christ in our hearts and to work through us for Christ's glory, we risk quenching the Spirit and missing out on divine comfort. So the call for us, particularly in God's Word, but also in the other roles of the Holy Spirit, we are called not to quench the Spirit's work among us. But on the flip side, we are in a day and an age where there are voices bombarding us from every side. And so we need the second principle of these verses. We desperately need the reminder to test everything we hear. Everything we hear, we are to test according to the truths of Scripture and the gospel and the character and fruits of those who speak it. Only a rigorous pursuit of God's truth, a regular weighing of every idea and action according to Scripture will preserve God's church from being hijacked by the pressures and commitments that are not the gospel and cannot save us. And so may God be at work in us, even as we test everything by his word. Well, that's our first call. Look now to verses 23 and 24, which are really the heart of this passage, where again we see that God is the one at work in us, even while we are called to pursue active participation in his work. Paul here talks about our sanctification in verses 23 and 24, and it's, a, it's an issue he's circled back to again and again in this letter. Chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 4, we've heard God talk about increasing and growing in obedience and love and holiness. And so here at the end, Paul comes back to again close his letter with this prayer. A prayer that I think, in many ways, summarizes Paul's heart in this whole letter. That God would give the church an increase in obedience and holiness that we might be preserved blameless at the day of Christ's return. And you see the details of this prayer. Look at verse 23. This is a prayer that the power of the God of peace would be at work in us. The God who sets all broken things right The God who restores all things to the way they ought to be through the work of Jesus Christ and through the power of his spirit. Would that God of peace be at work in God's people to bring about this sanctification? Paul then prays that this sanctification would happen completely. May God himself sanctify you completely or to the full extent. 
And then he prays that this sanctification would be comprehensive. That God would sanctify us in spirit, in soul, in body. And so he, Paul's prayer here is that God himself would sanctify all of us all the way. Comprehensively and completely. That he would preserve us blameless at the day of Christ. Our hope I want you to notice, and I think this is a key note to make here, is not complete until our spirit, soul, and body are all sanctified when Jesus returns. See, sometimes we think that when we die and our soul goes to be with God, that this process is complete. And that is a joy, but that's not the completion of our hope. Our hope is completed when Jesus comes again and raises the dead so that Whether we are dead or alive, at his return, we are all sanctified in our bodies to live forever as God intended humans to be. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of the eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body will put on an imperishable body. This mortal body must put on immortality. This is the moment when Paul's prayer will be fully answered and God's work will be complete. It's his return when we will be glorified and perfected in spirit, soul, and body. That is the fulfillment of our hope. But let me pause for here for a second, because this is a prayer. Paul is praying this prayer. And if you've ever prayed for anything before, as I have, we should know that God doesn't automatically just give everything you pray for. I was reflecting on some of my prayers as a young child and a a teenager, and I had the right instinct, I think. If I wanted something, I prayed for it. And so I would pray often that God would make the Cleveland Indians win their baseball games. I would pray often that I would get the things that I had on my birthday and and Christmas lists. And it didn't always happen. In fact, often it didn't. And so the question in our minds is, well, okay, is that the kind of prayer Paul is praying here? Like, I really hope God preserves us and sanctifies us, and we'll have to wait and see whether he does it or not. Well, we can talk about my underdeveloped theology of prayer later, but that is not the way Paul is praying here. Paul is praying with confidence. He says in verse 24, and there you see it, that he knows that God will answer this prayer. There's a guarantee, and it has to do with God's character. You see, verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And this has to be one of the most precious lines in Scripture for a believer. Because as we read this Any believer who sees that gap that we talked at the beginning of what God's word calls us to, but where our hearts are. For any believer who cries out with Paul, that I want to do, I do not do, and that I don't want to do, I see myself doing, who will rescue me from this body of death? For all of us who join Paul in that prayer, Paul says, God is faithful. He always fulfills his promises, and he always completes the work that he set out to do. So if God has called you to himself, if he has called you to holiness, he 
guarantees that he will finish it. It's exactly what Paul said in Philippians 1.6 as well. Many of you know that verse, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So remember our main point here? It is God's power that works in his people and gives us confident hope. God himself will complete this sanctification, even as we are called to active participation to pursue that goal. I was trying to think of maybe a picture or an analogy of how God's work in us and our participation fit together. And no, no analogy is perfect, but I was thinking back to a day, it was not long after my wife and I were married, I went up and spent a day with my uncle. And at the end of the day, my uncle slipped a wad of cash into my hand, and he said, I want you to go home and take your wife out for a nice dinner tonight. So we went home and we went out to dinner. And who did we give all the credit for that dinner to? My uncle. He paid for it. Wouldn't have happened without him. Couldn't have happened without him. But of course, I did still have to go home and tell my wife about the money. And I did have to drive her to dinner and pay the bill with the money. And so even though my uncle got all the credit, we still participated. We actively carried out that dinner. And again, no analogy is perfect. God's work in us is even more important and more complete than my uncle's giving us money. But you see the picture. God is the one who initiates. It is his power who enables and completes our sanctification. That's our hope. And yet our call is to participate daily and to strive with joy and eagerness to pursue the same goal God is pursuing. Our sanctification is his will for us. And the question for us each day as we face temptations is, is that our goal as well? Well, here we have this principle, God's power at work in us, even while we are called to participate in it. Well, look at this last section, these last verses, verses 25 to 28. We get these just short staccato statements, if you will, as Paul ends this letter. Brothers, pray for us. You know, Paul began this letter and throughout this letter has said that he prays for the Thessalonians. And sometimes we might have an idea in our head, the idea that, you know, Paul was the most prolific of the apostles. It makes sense that he would pray for us. But as the most prolific of, a pro- of apostles, did, did he really need our prayers? And the answer, of course, is yes. All throughout his letters, Paul begs God's people to be praying for him. 2 Corinthians 3, we'll read it again. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Or Colossians chapter 4, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for his word. See, Paul's Eagerness for prayer should remind us to faithfully pray for one another, but to particularly pray for pastors and missionaries and others who are preaching God's word. It's said that Charles Spurgeon, many of you know Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher in in London, it was said that in the basement of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London was a prayer room, and that Spurgeon would have people praying for him in that prayer room as he preached. See, brothers and sisters, the gospel's success, the gospel's success here in Lancaster and around the world certainly depends upon men and women going and declaring God's word, but it depends just as much on prayer, the prayers of God's people for the success of his word. And I know that I can certainly spend more time praying for the success of God's word 
And I would call us to follow Paul's encouragement. Brothers, pray for us. Then verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. We could have plenty of comments perhaps on the holy kiss, but this was the form of warm greeting in fellowship. I know of others who have have said the best summary here is with a hearty handshake, and maybe now we could say with a warm corona elbow tap. Um, But whatever form of greeting it is, we are to greet all of the brothers warmly. I think the important word for us in Paul's challenge here is greet all the brothers. And I realize that in a church the size of Westminster, no one of us is going to be able to greet everyone here on a given Sunday. But there should be no one in our church who is not greeted. And if that is going to happen, every single one of us must be committed to greeting all the brothers. Because if we all just stay in our circles of those whom we know, there are many who will not be greeted. And this is a challenge to all of us. We all have our groups that we need to break out of if we're going to fulfill this encouragement. As teens, you know, the unintentional cliques form so easily. And we need to be pushed not to just move to our friend circle, but to greet those on the outside or the visitor. In a county like Lancaster County, we are surrounded by family members and people we've grown up with since we were born. And so it's not just teens. It's all of us who need to be pushed not to gravitate to our friends and our family as we come into the fellowship of God's people, but to be aware of and eager to greet everyone, all of the brothers, and we start with the visitor and those who are not engaged in fellowship. And if I could add one more note for our church, for Westminster, we have the key question of whether we, you and I, as a congregation, are willing to enfold and greet our Burmese and Congolese brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if they are going to be part of our congregation as they desire to be, We must, at a very minimum, start with our willingness to ignore some language and cultural barriers and greet them. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we just let them be them and us be us, we will have failed as God's church with a group of brothers and sisters who want to be part of our fellowship. And so surely the intentional effort to greet them will be the bare minimum of fellowship in the family of God. Our church will live out this picture, this biblical picture of God's people when each of us cares about and makes the intentional effort to greet all the brothers. Well, then the final comment in verse 27, Paul charges the Thessalonians that this this letter be read to all the congregation. We remember, of course, that Paul is often aware that what he is writing is God's words to God's people. And so Paul encourages that this letter be read to all with the prayer that his words will come again. Remember in chapter 1, Paul said that his word came with power and conviction in the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul's desire is that this letter would come to the Thessalonians and again come with that power as it's read to the whole congregation. Prayer, greeting and fellowship, the reading of God's word. What a picture, right, of a godly church. And yet Paul finishes with his final benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
Because in each of these things, it is only the favor and kindness of God, only the power of God granted through Jesus Christ that enables these things to be true, that grounds our confident hope, and that orients our hearts once again to rejoice and give thanks always for our wonderful Savior. And so, brothers and sisters, as we finish this letter, may we work towards our sanctification, toward this picture of a godly church with all our efforts, confident in God's power that is at work in us through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, how I thank you and praise you for the work of Jesus. None of us would even have a spark of desire, nonetheless ability, to match this picture you've given us of a godly church or of genuine faith. And yet, you have sent Jesus Christ to live, to die, to rise again. You have sent the gift of your Holy Spirit to regenerate our hearts and make them anew after your image. And so I pray that we would eagerly, with great effort, pursue holiness and godliness individually and as a church, confident in your power at work in us. We thank you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.